Hey y'all, Evan here. If you've been listening for a while, you might notice a common thread in the places I visit is that you don't know how much longer some of them will be around. Now, I hope I'm not tempting fate, but don't think Amarillo's Big Texan Steak Ranch necessarily fits that mold. It's also certainly not hidden off some hard-to-find back road, and ain't exactly what you'd call attention-starved. But while it migrated to I-40 Shoulder over 50 years ago, its story was absolutely born on Route 66. And when you go there, you're not just getting prime rib and potatoes, but a taste of the kind of funhouse experience the good old American road trip was once known for. And like me, I think you'll find it's a darn good time. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, since today's episode finds us back in Texas, I'm going to let my friend Vincent Strange tell you about his show, Gone Cold, which I highly recommend to my fellow true crime junkies. Vincent? Texas has a reputation for being tough on crime, but beneath the surface, buried in the darkness that only those affected by tragedy know, is the reality of a flawed and insufficient justice system. More than 60% of violent crimes in Texas go unsolved, and many are at the hands of offenders who should have never had the opportunity, madmen who slipped through the cracks. On Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, you'll find in-depth accounts of unsolved homicides, missing persons cases, and other mysteries throughout Texas. From the historic and perplexing case of the 1948 disappearance of a Denton co-ed, Virginia Carpenter, to the unthinkable, the Orange, Texas abduction and murder of four-year-old Denaria Finley in 2002. You can find and subscribe to Gone Cold, Texas True Crime, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks, Vincent. Now, let's get on with the show. are the opening strains of Amarillo by Morning. And it doesn't surprise me when John and Josh Weatherly tell me it's easily their most requested tune. But this father and son duo aren't gigging at Smoky Joe's or any of the dives that lined this town's 6th Avenue. No. They're dodging platters of ribeyes and western-clad waitstaff while performing by my table at the Big Texan Steak Ranch. The world's greatest steak ranch. Absolutely, the world's greatest steak ranch. An incredible place to be. It's a uh, looking at it on TV does not do the place justice. You got to be here to see it. They've been filling in over the last nine months for family patriarch Doc Clark, who, after 46 years on payroll, has earned the right to scale back a few nights. Considering this, they're relative newbies by Big Texan standards, but despite confessing to a few opening night jitters, they've clearly been having fun on the job. Very scary, very scary. I, I really thought I needed me a diaper. I was scared, that scared. But yeah, it wasn't bad. After, after you get through the first song or two, it's not so bad. I can't compare it to anything else because this is my first gig. This is my first job ever. <laughs> it's the best, best thing I've ever done in my life. I mean, there's absolutely nothing more fun than meeting people and playing music for them. One day, we were, we were just playing like normal. 
and we're shooting the breeze with this one man, and we, we end up playing a Hank Williams song for him, and he really enjoys it. Anyways, we go away from the table, and his uh, lady, whoever he was hanging out with, comes to see us, and she's like, do you know who you just played for? And we were like, no idea. She said, well, you played for Bernie Leadon of the Eagles. And blew our minds. We played for a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, and we were like, didn't even know. <laughs> Having grown up licking salt off the rim of my parents' happy hour margaritas, I'm pretty used to enjoying a tableside mariachi serenade. That said, roving cowboy troubadours are something of a new experience for me. But Bobby Lee, the big Texans Burt Reynolds-like owner, tells me that very little about this place fits any kind of traditional mold. It's, it's more than a restaurant. Uh, Danny and I, my brother Danny and I, always are very careful about calling it a restaurant or acting like it's a restaurant because it's, it's so much more. It gives people such a, a unique experience because this part of the country is, is so flat and so barren and people come through here, they're excited about Texas and they, and they want to see something in Texas. They get to stop here and here's this huge yellow building. It's, it's everything that they would expect this place to be. But when, for somebody to come in here, it's, it's more than, than, than a meal. It's, uh, it goes back to the Three Ring Circus. This is, this is what we do at the Big Texan. We call it Eatertainment. Eatertainment. Never heard that before, but it's a good descriptor because this place is like Disney's Fort Wilderness on steroids. Garish, massive, and unmissable from the interstate, it feeds roughly 1,500 customers a day and over half a million each year. When I ask Bobby if he knows how much beef they go through, he can't say, but informs me his co-owner brother just bought an impressive order of calf fries. But I guess for listeners who uh, might be ignorant, what is a calf fry? Calf fry is a bull ball, fried bull ball. And we sell tons of them. Like I said, my brother bought 60,000 pounds of them two weeks ago, and we'll sell them all before this time next year. <laughs> Pulling into the parking lot in the shadow of its 84-foot sign, you'll be greeted by the sculpture of an enormous painted cow before walking down its boardwalk-inspired wraparound porch. Entering, you'll find a gift shop that's home to a 20-year-old pet rattlesnake named Brenda, and animatronic shooting gallery that's like a twisted saloon riff on Chuck E. Cheese. This seems like a lot to take in, though. Brace yourself for the dining room, which, in addition to its long tables, is something of a multi-level cathedral to taxidermy. You know, it's so funny, these animal heads in here, people look at that and they always say that, are you a hunter? Where would you get these things from? And you know, this place, we get, this is a regular deal that we'll get at least one to two people that'll come in and they'll ask to see the owner, the manager, and they'll say, I've got something in my car I think you'd be interested in. And we have gone out and we've seen over the years, we've seen everything from weapons of mass destruction to body parts to shrunken heads to animal heads of every kind uh, because people have them in their car they're trying to unload them somewhere and they're always trying to sell something out of the back of their car that's where we get so many of these animal heads and so many weird oddities is, is from people they find us and my wife always jokes about that she says you know you draw the strangest weirdest things I said no it's a restaurant it just it, it is what it is Pete has come out before uh, but once again I mean I consider that promotion, publicity. Promotion is a gift Bobby inherited from his Chicagoan father, who settled in Amarillo following a stint with Marriott, 
and recognized the potential this High Plains outpost promised. You don't go to Amarillo because it's a destination or you want to go there. It's, it's strictly a pass-through market. It's a, geographically, it's an ideal situation because it's a halfway point between Dallas and Denver, uh, Oklahoma City and Albuquerque, El Paso and Kansas City. I mean, it's, it's like all the roads meet in this, it's this part. The 197-mile strip east to west going from Oklahoma City to Albuquerque, this is the only time so many people get a chance to see Texas. This is where the big Texan got the magic from because back then Route 66 was the carrier and uh, that's what really brought the customers to there because when you're in Texas, so many people that have never been to Texas and this is the only time they go through it is this little strip going through the panhandle. You know, it's like um, if you go to Hawaii, you want to see gra girls in grass skirts. And when they come through the Texas panhandle, they want to see big cowboys. They want to see horseback riders on the street. You know, this is this is what they want to see, and that's 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 a that was a real nice fertile ground for for starting the big Texan. It really was. My dad, being a Yankee, had no idea about you know what it was to be a Texan or cowboys or anything else. But he saw that there was a tremendous opportunity for that. The original Big Texan, when he opened it, it really lacked a lot of the, you know, big show stuff like it did nowadays. But the original Big Texan was about four blocks away from the Amarillo Stockyards. And at the time, that was one of the largest stockyards in, in, in the country. And the cowboys that worked there would, they started stopping by his place because he would cashier checks and then he was smart enough, he would sell them nickel beer. And he put them at the very center table of the restaurant to where all these tourists could come in and that and looking to see these cowboys and there they were and then the reaction that they were getting from the tourists was amazing he was smart enough and to sit back and let them do what they were going to do and watch the reaction of the people and it was big buzz on Ridge 66 back then that you could stop in this place and see these big cowboys and that's when he started making the additional changes and adding things to the deal um, you know, we were famous for having a cowboy on the back, on a horseback out in front of the place. And that came from one of those cowboys' horses getting out of the trailer. And it was wandering around the parking lot. And they came in and said there was a horse out in the parking lot. So this cowboy went out there and jumped up on his horse. And when he jumped up on his horse, cars were actually running into each other on, on Route 66 in front of the place because there was a cowboy on horseback like they always thought that but this was Texas. My dad went up to the guy, he says, whatever you're making at the stockyards, I'll pay you double to sit on your horseback in the parking lot here. So it was little things like that that, that added to the flavor and the development of the Big Texan. Noticing this success, to add to the flair, Bobby's dad decided to hire a greeter who could embody the role of the Big Texan himself and struck gold with a tall, handsome, charismatic college freshman by the name of Dale Burroughs. Nearing 80 and now living in Temple, he quickly corrected me when I called him Dale over the phone, because six decades after his first shift, he still answers to Tex. R.J., uh, Lee, Bobby, and Danny's dad, uh, told me to introduce myself as Tex after he had hired me to uh, be the greeter and, and greet people. And so I, I thought it was kind of corny, but uh, I did it. I was embarrassed the first couple of weeks. Uh, I finally figured out that these people are somebody I'm never going to see again in my life. We're on Highway 66. So I started having fun with it. And so by the time I went in the Army, Tex was pretty well ensconced. And, and now it's 
everybody except my immediate family calls me Tex. Uh, R.J. knew the cafeteria manager down at West Texas State, and he called him and asked him if there was, he was looking for somebody tall that could uh, portray a Texas cowboy to uh, work summers for him. And so there were two of us that went up, my roommate and I. We were both basketball players. Uh, Scotty Pierce was 6'8", and I was 6'7". So we went up and uh, talked to Mr. Lee, and he hired us both on the spot. His roommate didn't last long, but Tex ended up sticking with the job for five years because he found he liked the free food and especially the people because you just never knew who might show up. That first year, uh, Dick Clark's Bandstand Productions, uh, their touring bus, stopped there for lunch one day. And uh, the first group to get off was Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Their one hit was Wooly Bully. Now, this is 1962, and the law of the land is integration, but uh, uh, it's not necessarily true, especially back in those days. So I saw three black girls get off the bus, and uh, I went immediately went out to uh, ask them to come in. I just said, ladies, if you can have lunch, come on in, and I'll get you a table, just to let them know that it's okay in case they wanted to do that. And uh, one of them said, well, no, we're in show business and uh, we, we have to watch our weight. So we eat breakfast and then we eat supper, but uh, we don't eat lunch. So I spent the rest of the noon hour out there talking to them until they left. And uh, as everybody asked me, they always want to know how tall I am. Well, I was 6'7", and I had about uh, two inches on a heel on my boot, and I had a hat that stuck up a little more above my head, and I knew they couldn't tell how tall I was, so I said, Sugar, I'm seven feet tall. And she goes, mm-mm, well, if you're so tall, how tall is your wife? And I said, Sugar, I don't have a wife. In fact, I don't even have a good prospect. Well, she grabbed home arm and said, Honey, will you do now? Do you know who that girl was? Diana Ross. Diana Ross in the original Supremes. Just going to take a quick break to say that as a compliment to today's episode, if you're curious to learn some of the true but no less colorful history of Texas, you should do yourself a favor and check out the podcast, Wise About Texas. While I rarely agree with what goes on in Austin nowadays... Last year, the State House passed a resolution honoring its host, my friend Ken Wise, for his 100th episode, which is an action I can totally get behind. In Wise About Texas, Ken shares about characters and incidents in history both familiar and wild. For instance, did you know that back in the 1830s, when it was a republic, a few Texans tried to annex the Mexican island of Cozumel? Yeah. If you're curious to hear more stories like that, Plug your earbuds into Wise About Texas, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's get on with the show. Hearing Tex talk about the early years, it's pretty easy to infer that today's circus-like atmosphere is nothing new and can be traced to Bobby Lee's father. R.J. was a most interesting guy to work for. I realized quickly that uh, he was more like P.T. Barnum than he was a restaurant owner. He was always looking for some idea to promote the place. 
And so he, one of the things that he did that really put it on the map, uh, he, he had uh, billboards t- uh, talking about the big Texan restaurant all the way, 300 miles from the west and 250 miles from the east. And we had a lot of people that stopped just to find out what this place was like because they had seen so many signs. Those billboards are still there. You'll pass 75 of them on I-40 approaching Amarillo from either direction, and they still advertise one of RJ's wildest ideas, the free 72-ounce steak. So it was 12 seats at this big table he put in the middle of the dining room for those cowboys. He said, you know, who can eat the most? And they all said, I can do this, I can do that. Of course, I wanted to outdo it. And he said, look, next Friday, there's 12 seats here. It's $5 a seat. I'm going to bring out one-pound steaks over an hour period of time. And whoever eats the most one-pound steaks will get the $5, which was $60. And uh, the buzz was all over town, and he called the newspaper about it. So there was a lot of publicity. And he was learning as he went because he realized what, what this generated, you know, appetite was, uh, you know, a... a gluttony, you know, some somebody could do this, all these big cowboys in there. So uh, he started bringing out the one-pound steaks, and uh, one cowboy ate two of them, and then he realized he was ahead of everybody else, so he said, well, he wanted to show off a little bit more. So he said, well, bring me a baked potato over there, bring me a salad, and I want one of them shrimp cocktails, and, and bring me some more bread. And he started eating all this other stuff, and then he ate two and a half more, so that was four and a half one-pound steaks, which is 72 ounces. And the entire dinner he ate was the shrimp cocktail, tossed salad, rolled butter, and, the, and, and he was able to eat all that in one hour. And my dad saw the reaction from the dining room that he had eaten four and a half one-pound steaks, and he said, from this day forward, anybody that can eat this meal will get it for free. That was within the first months of opening back in 1960. Since then, tens of thousands have taken this challenge head-on, and its hype shows no signs of slowing. In fact, the dining room centerpiece is a stage built to showcase competitors so patrons can cheer and count along as the minutes tick by on an oversized clock. But having had a ringside seat for his entire lifetime, Bobby has learned never to place bets on winners or losers. Uh, We had a little lady, 128 pounds, ate three of them in 20 minutes, which... I still, I sat there and watched it. It was on national television, and it really, really happened. It was like a, a human lawnmower when she was going through it. But sure, it's it, there's a lot of other eating contests across the country, which is fine. But once again, this is like uh, the Stanley Cup. I mean, there's only one Stanley Cup, and the Big Texan, this is, a, this is a standard mark. This is a benchmark for all the competitive eaters to come in here and say that they've done this one. What's so funny about it, it's the same rules, uh, it's still one out of every six men that'll do it. It's still one out of every two women that'll do it. Uh, and it's there's no profile for, oh, somebody says time to do it, oh, he's going to do it. There's no way of knowing until they get into it. There's no, oh, well, he's 200 pounds, he's going to be able to do it. He's 300 pounds. I've seen I've seen wrestlers come in after they were I wrestled at the Emerald Civic Center. I mean, some of these guys are so big, we have to let them in through the back kitchen door. And they come in, they can't even get close to it. But yet, once again, we had a, little tiny people come in and eat the thing so there's there's no secret formula on that and, and people get up there but for them to win for them to get a t-shirt and announce as a winner to get a, a certificate of the world's most exclusive club which is 72 on steak eater club that's especially little and the marketing the advertisement those people are going to do for you walking around the country beating their chest saying they did it 
the promotion we get off winners are so much better. When they lose, they'll say, I lost, and they're not going to tell all the people. If they win, they're going to tell everybody. And I had a guy graduate from Harvard Law School, and he sent me a picture of his law degree up on his, on his office wall, and then underneath it, he had the plaque with the 75 steak eaters deal. So, Just then, I notice a husky, bearded 40-something take the stage. I can tell from his grin he's a fun-loving sport, so I run over to introduce myself. What's your name, good sir? Uh, Ken Freik. And where are you in from? Uh, Tucson, Arizona. Tucson, Arizona. And so uh, have, you, have you heard of the uh, Big Texan Challenge before? I have, I have. So I saw it on the Food Network, I think it's about 12 years ago, and I told myself if I ever drove through Texas, I was going to do it. And so now my family and I are on an RV trip across the country, and so we're here. And so what's your strategy? I'm uh, going to go all the meat first, and then uh, hit up all the, the potatoes and the rolls and the salad afterwards. You think you're going to do it? I hope so. <laughs> Give it a college try. All right, man. Well, I'm going to be rooting for you, okay? I appreciate it. Thank you. I don't want to psych him out too much and leave the stage before two waitresses show up carting his daunting smorgasbord. They give him a second to inspect the meat, then grab the room's attention. Attention, Big Texan! We've got Ken, all the way from Arizona, trying a 72-ounce challenge. He's got an hour to eat 72 ounces of beef, baked potatoes, salad roll, and three fried shrimp. Come up here and take as many breakfast as you like, but please stay off the stage. Let's give him a round of applause. Without missing a beat, Ken starts sawing the meat into bite-sized pieces and begins putting it away with speedy focus. I'm impressed out of the gate and ask my waitress Zoe for her assessment, but she says it's too early to tell, and I trust her because she's clearly witnessed a lot. There was once a guy who choked on the first bite, like not the first bite happening, like choked on it. It's bad to say that's memorable, but <laughs> there was um, a guy who did it in like 15 minutes once when I was here. Like I didn't even like process that he was even doing it. Like I looked, they announced him, looked back, and he was just done. And have you ever seen anyone get sick? Oh yeah, too many times, too many times. I go straight to the kitchen as soon as that happens. I am not a big fan of seeing that. <laughs> Around the telltale 20 minute mark, I identify Ken's cheering section, introduce myself, and check in with his wife Amanda and young son Kenny III to get a read on how they feel dad is doing. So uh, my husband was the CEO of an assisted living facility company, which was clearly a lot the past couple years. So uh, last spring, I handed him a beer and said, I think you need to leave your job and we need to buy a motorhome and travel the country because I can work from anywhere. Uh, and so a few months later we did, and so we are on that trip. We're like 4,000 miles and two and a half months in, and we stopped at Amarillo specifically so he could do this silly steak challenge. And so here we are, traveling the country. You can follow us on Instagram, I'm supposed to do that, right? Like, isn't that a thing? Follow us on Instagram, at Boomer and Dukes. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. So we're full-time RV family now, just traveling the country, living our best life. Okay, so how so how's he doing? Um, he's doing good. You think he's gonna win? I I mean, I know he can do it. He he gave me kind of a uh, not as confident look a moment ago, which I think is just psyching himself out. He's got this. I turn to the retired hippie seated to the family's left to get their read on the situation. So all right, if you're uh, if you're placing a bet. 
Is he going to win it? Is he going to pull this off? Oh, he a hundred percent is going to win this baby. I would lay a million dollars down on him winning. Yeah, I would because I don't really have a million dollars. So. Who does nowadays? Where are you in from? We're from Washington State. Bobby, however, isn't quite as rosy in his assessment. Uh, let's see. He's. I always watch the way they chew, the way they breathe. The size of spikes they're taking, if he's taking that size bite, he's not going to make it. If he's 25 minutes into it, that 20 minute mark is usually when your stomach starts telling your brain, what in the world are you doing to me? You know, it's, it's really funny and it looks like he might be slowing down quite a bit. See how long he's chewing? He shouldn't be chewing that much because that meat is nice and tender. His mouth's dry. Checking in on Ken a few minutes later seems to confirm Bobby knows what he's talking about. How you doing, brother? I'm feeling it. You're looking good. I'm rooting for you. Thank you. Actually, he does have a case of meat sweats, which is something Amanda can't help but notice. Uh, I think he's slowing down. He's getting close. He's getting close. Uh, how, much, how much time do we have left? I, I think we're under 10 minutes. He hurt you, bud. <laughs> But despite young Kenny's howls and having made a valiant effort, Dad proves no match for the clock, and even the crowd's countdown ends in an anticlimactic whimper. Okay, are you, are you good to talk? Oh, uh, yeah. How, how are you feeling right now? Full. Other than feeling full, I feel good. <laughs> Just very full. <laughs> so knowing what, knowing what you know now, would you do it again? I would. I didn't have the, the jaw muscles to, to chew that much. Uh, towards the end, I couldn't break down the meat. I couldn't chew enough to break the meat down. So uh, maybe with a little more training. Uh, I don't know if I would do this one, but I would definitely do another eating challenge. Well, good luck to you and all of your uh, future endeavors, good sir. Thank you, you as well. And so ends another night of spectacle at the Big Texan. There have been many before, and I trust there will be many to come. Bobby tells me they'll have to wheel him out on a stretcher before he calls it quits, and that his sons are in line to take over whenever that day arrives. Changes are to be expected, and this place has moved and adapted with the times before. But provided Amarillo maintains its position as a crossroads, and those who pass through continue to hunger for a taste of Western mystique, the Big Texan and its namesake sign will endure. My dad had a company named Horrell Sign Company make that back in 1959 before he opened. The second it went up, it, it became the, the most recognizable icon on, on Route 66. Uh, his name is Tex. We're probably going to be taking him down and repainting him. We do that about every 10 years. Uh, and it's really weird when he comes down. It's kind of a weird feeling to look up there and not see him. And you know, every, every time I, I, I leave the restaurant, I always kind of look up at him and just think about, you know, over the past 61 years, how many millions and millions of people have looked up and seen him and, and used him as a, as a like a lighthouse for 
wherever they're at, that they that there's the lighthouse. There it is. That's that's where the big Texan is at. I never would have dreamed that. I know my dad would never dream that it would be such an icon, just like the 72-ton stake. But I guess hopefully he'll be another here another 60 years after I'm gone. Thanks to the many fine people who made this episode happen, especially the wonderful Bobby Lee, for not only speaking with me, but introducing me to Dale Tex Burroughs, and of course showing me incredible hospitality while I was in Amarillo. More than the restaurant, the Big Texan also encompasses a concert venue called the Starlight Ranch, which features some truly top-tier touring talents. They also own a motel where Bobby was kind enough to put me up for the night. It sits right next to the restaurant, and after the massive dinner I had, it was great to just waddle over and curl up in bed. I promise you, if you're in Amarillo, the Big Texan is a must-stop. And to plan your visit, check out BigTexan.com, which I'm linking in the show notes. I also thank you for listening. If you like this episode and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krause and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.